0: Biblical justice, social justice, A, starts with the capital O, other. How do we give God his due, right? That's why the first of the Ten Commandments is have no gods before God. That's why the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's where true justice starts, with the Godhood of God.
1: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize the world can be a confusing place to live in. And what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our chaotic world so that you can face the confusion and chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. One of the most confusing aspects of our life today is the topic that we've touched on before here at Filter, which is the topic surrounding the issues of justice or social justice, uh, the issues around uh, different ideas such as critical race theory, uh, anti-racism, and and a host of other issues that are being debated in our culture right now. The guest that I have on today's show is, uh, is a phenomenal voice in this conversation. He has just come out with a recent book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Uh, My guest is Thaddeus Williams. Uh, He's written this excellent new book on the topic of social justice and particularly how Christians equipped with a biblical worldview should approach the subject of social justice and do so through the lens that we have from Scripture. Thaddeus Williams has a Ph.D., and he loves enlarging students' understanding and enjoyment of Jesus at Biola University in La Mirada, California, where he serves as Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology for the Talbot School of Theology. He also taught philosophy and literature at Saddleback College, jurisprudence at Trinity Law School, and as a lecturer in worldview studies at Labrie Fellowship in Switzerland and Holland. And he's taught ethics for Blackstone Legal Fellowship uh, and the Federalist Society in Washington, D.C. He resides in Orange County, California with his wife and four kids. I really had a blast, Uh, had a great time getting to have this conversation with Thaddeus about his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Before we jump into that conversation, let me encourage you real quick to subscribe to this show if you have not yet already, whether you're watching on YouTube, listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you might be. Subscribe so that you don't miss out on any future episodes or content that we put out. Also, if you, if you enjoy what you get here at Filter, let me encourage you to like this video if you're watching on YouTube, uh, to leave us a comment to let us know uh, what you think, if you have any further questions uh, or, or, or comments, thoughts. From the episode. We'd love to hear that and get to interact with it. If you're listening on iTunes, it would really help us out whenever you leave a review and a rating, because then that'll, uh, if you leave us a positive rating and a five star review, well, then that would uh, really help other people to discover this show and uh, benefit from the resources that we are putting out. So let me encourage you to do those things if you have not yet already. Uh, so it'll help you and it'll help us. It'd be really great. So I'm really excited to bring you guys this uh, conversation that I got to have with Thaddeus Williams on social justice and so many other topics. Uh, so without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation. Thaddeus, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Aaron. It's a joy to be with you, brother.
1: Well, I'm really happy that uh, I got you on. Uh, as I was telling you before, I've been reading your book for a while now, and uh, and I've been really, really enjoying it. I think it's one of the best books that I've read uh, on these topics that have been really on the forefront of our culture recently, you know, related to justice um, and, uh, and many diff- different other other issues. Uh, so, yeah, really excited to have you on today.
0: Thanks, Ben. It's a it's a delight to be with you. The book was not fun to write. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, I had to spend <laughs> over three years, every single day consuming a steady social media diet of all the things, all the most controversial combustible topics ranging Mm -hmm. from racism and critical race theory to, you know, queer and gender theory, um, transgenderism in the Olympics, like all the stuff everybody shouts at each other about Mm -hmm. online every day. So yeah, immersing myself in that for over 3 years was yeah not a fun experience it was super soul taxing but i think ultimately worth it
1: yeah yeah i mean i don't know how anybody could come out of that without having a blast uh, <laughs> but but you made it on the other side hopefully you're stronger for it right hopefully yeah it <laughs> but, helped
0: having four kids to to be a goofball with at the end of long riding days and yeah you know Give my five-year-old son, Henry, some flying atomic wedgies of doom. And mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, definitely yeah. help keep me sane through the process.
1: Oh, yeah. Praise God for the kids, right? Yep. Amen. And, uh, without them, uh, who else would we uh, release our frustrations on? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, of course. <laughs> just kidding. Um, that didn't come out well. <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> you mean find joy in not release Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, okay. So while we're talking about the background, what, what led you to write this book? You know, once again, the book is uh, confronting injustice without compromising truth. What you you said, there's a, it was a three-year process of digging into uh, the resources, but, but what led up to even that and wanting to dedicate that much time to writing a book on this topic? Yeah, that's a great question.
0: You know, I, I had been pretty deep, like a hundred thousand words deep into another book project um, for a, trilogy I'm working on in Systematic Theology, and I actually hit pause on that book, which Lord willing, I'll be able to wrap up here in the next couple months, Um, and and the reason I did that was, you know, I've been a professor now for a long time, (laughs) full-time at Biola University for eight years now, Mm -hmm. uh, teaching Systematic Theology, Christian Apologetics, Introduction to Worldview, Um, evangelism classes like that. And I just noticed in the last four to five years, a very distinctive shift from who's usually the problem of evil, the most common objection I ever heard Mm -hmm. uh, traveling the world. That was question number one. How do we reconcile a good God's existence with how broken things are? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that changed in the last four and five years, and it became, how do we think about social justice? Some version of that question, you know, what's the Christian response to, to systemic racism? What's the Christian response to the redefinition of marriage? What's the Christian response to capitalism versus socialism? It was some version of the social justice question. Yeah. Um, so that was the first impetus to write was seeing that this is you trying to keep my finger on the pulse of where my students are at. These issues have all skyrocketed to the top of the list. The second factor was I saw many students, some friends, and a handful of family members start waving the social justice banner, and there are certain versions of so-called social justice out there that are, I would argue, and I argue in the book, pretty toxic um, not just for the culture, but for people's souls. Mm-hmm. So I saw you know friends, students, and some family members who went from manifesting fruit of the spirit, you know, they were marked by love and joy and peace and patience and so forth. And the deeper they went down the rabbit hole of certain social justice ideologies, I saw all of those fruits invert and become their antithesis. Mm-hmm. So they became, um, pretty hateful, many of them, and always assuming the worst of other people 's motives and self righteous and suspicious and 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 paranoid and easily offended all those things and, and that just got me scratching my head like, what on earth is happening um to to students coming up in this generation, mostly gen Z not all of them but but a significant enough chunk that it started sending off alarm bells, Um, which leads to a third reason. I just looked out there and said, what do I hand off to these students or churches who are concerned about the influx of certain political ideologies in their congregations? And and the playing field was pretty slim. Um, So I would say it was a combination of those three factors combined with a whole lot of prayer that led to me staring at my laptop screen for three years and (laughs) cranking this one out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And I think that same trajectory that you, that you described, um, that you witnessed happening in, in, in students or friends and so on, as they begin to embrace more and more, uh, a certain strain of social justice, uh, which we're going to get into your, your differentiation, which I think is sure. one of the things that makes your book very, uh, really stand out. One of the best, um, yeah, you can see how as, as certain Christians have embraced it, like you said, it leads down this, uh, this very dark pathway yeah, that changes their character sure. and very often with that changes uh, their beliefs as well. Uh, what you're saying is really reminiscent to me of uh, what Neil Shinvey writes about and talks about for the, the exact same reason that he started reading into this because he was witnessing that same slide in so many people yeah. that he had been noticing and, uh, and, and, and it always seemed to work its way back to a, a start with uh, a concern for social justice of one kind or another, so, so yeah, sure. I think that yeah, a lot of people are seeing it. it it's something that's undeniable. Um, it, I and, think and we see that same trajectory. Too, that yeah, just
0: just real quick to interject. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the responses I had seen to some of the more worrisome aspects of social justice um, were pulling their cues primarily from the polarized cultural moment. So if you were to even say, you know, racism is still an issue in 2021, um, then the response would be to automatically like social justice warriors, snowflake, far left, Marxist mm-hmm. infiltrator. Um, yeah. and, and so I just saw a lot of the church responses. um weren't playing by biblical rules so much as they were playing by the rules of the polarized cultural moment. And so I yeah. wanted to sort of stand in that gap and say, let's bring this conversation back to the source. Let's get back to Scripture.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I think that whenever our, uh, our Christian worldview is so um, uh, weak or empty as to not include for us some very solid and clear answers uh, for these topics, then people, uh, Christians, both on right or left, will become very insecure, and so yes. perceive any potential threat to their position, um, so, you know, a, a, as a very severe threat, and respond to it in a, uh, you could say, um, you know, ir- irrational or certainly unchristian like manner. Out of that insecurity, but if we can have a more robust worldview on these issues. Within well, those perceived threats aren't perceived as quite so severe. So going back to the book, one thing that I wanted to ask you about that uh, that I found interesting and I thought might be interesting for uh, for viewers, listeners, people who are maybe interested in your book, maybe skeptical, is that the foreword is written by a civil rights legend, uh, John Perkins. Uh, and so I was wondering, how did you get John Perkins to write the foreword? And, and then specifically, why did he write the foreword to this book? What is it about your book that uh, that made him want to put his stamp of approval on it, so to say?
0: Yeah, well, I I camped out in his front yard in Mississippi for about two months and just was relentless. No, uh, we have a, we have a mutual friend who uh, read a manuscript and put us in touch and basically endeared the book to John and said, this is right down your alley. You're gonna love it. Mm -hmm. And thankfully he did. And so uh, we started a Facebook or a FaceTime friendship um, that sort of evolved into a mentorship over the last, I'd say year and a half. Mm -hmm. And he's just become a very dear friend. And when he read the book, what resonated with him is that so many of the ideologies right now for dealing with racism are informed less by scripture; they aren't shaped by the gospel. They're just sort of pages torn from, you know, Ibram X. Kendi or Robin DiAngelo or some of the other authors that you've discussed on this show with George Yancey. Um And so, I think it, that's what resonated with Perkins and inspired him to, to write what is just a stellar, stellar forward. I was so honored. He he basically outlines, you know, now that he's 91 years old, like he just celebrated wow. his 91st birthday, and he's been mm-hmm. doing what he calls holistic ministry, um, where you bring the relevance of Jesus to bear on the whole person, right? We're, we're integrated beings. We're, we're whole beings. And Jesus isn't just in the business of saving spirits. So we float off to the clouds when we die and, you know, strum air harp or something. He, Jesus redeems the whole person. And so he's been doing that kind of holistic ministry for six over 60 years now. Um, and so he looked at the 12 questions I was asking and, yeah, they struck a chord. They resonated for him. And so he is passing on some of his legacy to the next generation of biblically informed justice seekers and he says it it sort of becomes the outline of the book he says number one start with god otherwise it ain't real justice number two recognize our unity in christ we are one blood he says um so regardless of our ethnic identity or economic status or our xx or xy chromosomes or anything else the fact is we are adopted by the same father we are redeemed by the same Son, and we're inhabited by the same Spirit. And so if we pursue justice, but we don't start with that that family reality, then it's just going to lead to never-ending strife and division. Uh, number three, Perkins says we got to keep the gospel first. And he doesn't redefine the gospel to make it some kind of social gospel. He's saying the historic gospel of the Christian faith, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So God and God alone gets the glory. He says, if you don't start there, then whatever you call justice is going to turn into something else. Um, and then last but not least, he says, just teach the truth, even if it isn't popular, even if you're going to be called names, even if you're going to be Branded with a scarlet B for bigotry, or I for intolerant, or H for hater, uh, it's our job to tell the truth because you can't do justice without truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I deeply appreciated his insights in the forward, and they really become sort of the foundation for the next twelve chapters.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's uh, it, he's a great friend to have on your side because whenever you uh, make arguments like the one, like the ones that you make in this book, and you push back against. Those, uh, the, those ideologies, which are being accepted, uh, widely in our culture, but also in the church of, uh, anti-racism and whatever else you want to put under the umbrella of wokeness. Uh, yeah, yeah. you'll be called a bigot. You'll be called, uh, someone who is wanting to hold on to, uh, to white supremacy or, uh, white centeredness or just whiteness, you know? Um, yep. and so w- with, his foreword it sort of makes anyone who would, uh, Uh, allege those claims against you? Uh, Well, are you saying that John Perkins is also wanting to uphold white supremacy or whatever else you want to say?
0: (laughs) Yeah. But the truth is, Aaron, you're putting your finger on a fundamental epistemological shift that has occurred in the mainstream of Western culture in the last five years, which is, you know, under modernity, the question was, is it true based on evidence, based on science under postmodernity, it was less, is it true and more, is it tolerance? Uh, and now with this new era we're on the cusp of and have been for the last few years, it, truth and tolerance, aren't so much the foundation of truth, but um, what's the, the chromosomes, of the person articulating the idea how much melanin did they have in their skin cells a whole ge- it just baffles my mind that a whole generation has been trained conditioned to assess the truth or falsehood of ideas based on ad hominem attacks based on externals it's it just it we've lived through that epistemic shift yeah. Um, which leads me to one of my favorite aspects of the book. Th- this book cuts through all that because most of my research is coming from voices of color, whether it's, you know, John McCorder or Jason Riley or Tom Sowell or Coleman Hughes or fill in the blank. Um, but my favorite part of the book is that at the end of every chapter, there's a co-author, a contributor who shares their story. and. Yeah. There's a, there's a diverse range. You know, there's a good buddy of mine from Nepal who's a Dalit and untouchable. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how the gospels set him free um, from that social injustice, but it also inspires him to continue fighting it. Um, you have an ex neo-Nazi share his story in the book. Um, you have several black brothers and sisters um, who sort of debunk the stereotype of quote, the black voice. Um, so that's my personal favorite part is you get to hear from 12 diverse authors. You know, my parts take them or leave them, but the contributors make it worthwhile.
1: Yeah, that is one of the unique parts of your book that uh, that you have 12 co-authors. Yeah. You, say. you know, these uh, all, all, all these actual voices who come in and, and, and give their 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 story. Uh, and it really does help. And it, and it adds to the arguments that you that you just laid out to then hear someone's story and how relevant it is to um to what you were just saying right that that these aren't just theories but they have a real impact on life they have Absolutely. a real uh they have a real formative impact on on we as human beings and our and our souls
0: yep. so i, I want to come back if, if around okay to that you, if it's okay with you if i could just
1: mm-hmm. briefly share one of those stories yeah go ahead
0: um uh, one of my favorites is my dear brother out in new york edwin ramirez mm-hmm. um who's puerto rican and um got saved a few years ago and then started buying into again, whatever label we choose in the book. I call it social justice B. Some people call it wokeness, anti racism, critical race theory. There's a whole, you know, controversy about the best label, which I'm less concerned with. Um, but all that, <laughs> let's just call it that. Um, Edwin Ramirez got really swept up in it to the point where he shares in the book, it, it affected his capacity to worship. Mm. And so he would show up. To church on Sunday, and he would look around the room and see all the people with not very much melanin in their skin cells, and now he was conditioned to see them as his oppressors. You know, they, they have all these um, hidden privileges that I don't. Um, they, they've been complicit in the history of racism. Uh, I, I have more melanin, therefore, I'm the oppressed and as he shares his story he makes it clear that like i was saying at the opening of our conversation those fruits of the spirit the love the joy the peace the patience etc slowly got replaced in edwin's heart with suspicion and rage and self-righteousness and assuming the worst of mm. others mm-hmm. to the point where you know the the band would be belting out be thou my vision or some great hymn how great thou art And Edwin found himself just kind of standing there in the back of the room with his arms crossed, seething in judgment at a room full of white oppressors. Well, all that changed for Edwin. He was in a rural church. He was visiting with his family, predominantly white church. And his all-time favorite hymn came on. And his eyes fixed on this sweet old white lady in the front row who just had her palms stretched out to the sky, worshiping Jesus with every fiber of her being. And Edwin says, when his eyes fixed on her, it just it clicked all at once. Like I've been brainwashed to see her first and foremost as my oppressor, which is what social justice B does. It trains you, it, it rewires your brain quite literally to see individual image bearers of God as exemplars or ciphers or stand-ins for their identity group, whether it's Mm -hmm. an oppressed or oppressor group. Mm -hmm. And so the scales fell off for Edwin in that moment. And he said, wait a second, that's my sister in Christ. We've been, we've been saved by the same Jesus. We're family. Like as John Perkins says, like we're one blood, we're family. And Edwin says at that moment, all these Bible verses just started rifling through his mind about, you know, Jesus has divided. He's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility in Ephesians, um, in Galatians, in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, um, all these passages. And it, it really just set him free. And so the fact yeah. that I'm, I'm able to, to platform stories like that makes it all worthwhile.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The stories are great. I really enjoyed that one. I, I loved also the one from, uh, Monique. Uh,
0: yes. How you,
1: how you pronounce her last name? Duson. Duson. Okay. I'm from yeah. South Louisiana. So that's Duson. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Du-son. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, <laughs> I wasn't sure how you, you pronounce it, but yeah, her, hers were, uh, was, was really similar and, uh, and a great story as well. You you've already gone to, you've already thrown out there a few times, the term social justice B. Uh, in the book, you draw a contrast between, uh, like I said before, some of the different strains of social justice that we can see uh, in, in, our, in our world today and in the church and being practiced and so on that you call social justice A and social justice B. Can you explain uh, for our audience what you mean by those and, and and how you then, after differentiating, kind of trace these two different, uh, sure. two different ideas yeah. in the book?
0: Yeah, so the short version again, there's a huge hubbub about what, what's the right term uh, anti racist, CRT. Should Christians even use a term like social justice? Which, just as a historical fun fact, was coined by a Christian political philosopher over 200 years ago, um, later got hijacked um, by Marxists in the 20th century. Um, for me, that debate just isn't that interesting. So I I, I coined um, a distinction between social justice A, which, broadly speaking, is the kind of justice pursuits that jive with a biblical worldview. Uh, so examples I give in the book, this would be, you know, in the early church, first century, if we time warped back, you have um, unwanted Roman babies who were tossed aside like garbage in literal garbage heaps, like trash dumps yeah. in the first century. And so our brothers and sisters 2000 years ago realized like, wait a second, I've read Ephesians one, God, the father called me unblemished. He, he has declared me blameless. He has adopted me as his beloved son or daughter. So now we're going to take that vertical gospel and expand its implications horizontally. We're going to go to the literal human dumps. We're going to adopt these unwanted babies and raise them as cherished sons and daughters. And within two generations, the early church abolished the, the human dump and fantaside system across the Roman Empire. Yep. That That's what I'm getting at with social justice A, or fast forward to... You know, obvious examples like uh, Fred Douglas, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman in the U.S., um, spearheading the abolitionist movement in the U.K., William Wilberforce in the Clapham sect, who not in spite of, but because of their deep biblical faith, they said, wait a second, how are we treating image bearers of God who have irreducible value, dignity, and worth, how, how do we treat them like property? That that can't stand or in the 20th century, um, Christians like Vaclav Havel in the Czech Republic who stood up to communism, um, Christians like Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Soviet Union who stood up to communism, um, Germans like Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans who started the White Rose Society to stand up to Hitler and his minions, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the resistance you know, fighting the Third Reich. Yeah. Um, so th- there's a rich history that Christians can tap into of our brothers and sisters who've taken Scripture's commands, not suggestions, Scripture's commands to do justice seriously. And that legacy stretches on to today. You know, in, in some of my research for the book, I found that Christians are number one of any demographic when it comes to giving to the poor. Um, not just financially, but giving their time, giving resources, and being willing to leave their comfort zone and travel overseas to serve the poor. That, that's this social justice A legacy I'm talking about. Um, there was a study that I cite in a um, recent book by the Gospel Coalition. Um, I did a chapter on social justice. It's this book right here, um, Before mm-hmm. You Lose Your Faith, edited by Ivan Mesa. And in this book, I document the fact that in Philadelphia, 12 faith communities, just 12, generated over $50 million of economic benefits for their surrounding communities in a single year. Wow. Over $50 million in in 12 months, just 12 faith communities. So again, that, that's this legacy that, thank God, continues into the present. Of social justice a Christians leading in the adoption and foster care worlds examples could go on and on social justice B is very different I mean the shorthand definition is it's a kind of justice pursuits that are deeply incompatible with scripture and so this would be just one or two quick examples if I believe that I get to be sovereign over my identity and I get to be sovereign over the meaning of my own biology and I define myself a certain way and somebody comes along and doesn't agree with my sovereignly self-defined identity. I am therefore oppressed. They are therefore my oppressor reinforcing the, the hegemonic power of a heteronormative cisgender culture or something like that. So now I'm, automatically the oppressed because my self-definition hasn't been validated. Even just giving an example like that, you can already start to hear, like, I'm talking about two completely different things. Both can be branded social justice, but there's a a night and day contrast. Let me give just one more quick example. There's a uh, a best-selling author, Christian author, um, with one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. I won't name him. Um, we actually had the same editor at Ed Zondervan. And on his podcast, this was a couple of years ago when the John MacArthur and company released what was called the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. Do you mm. remember that? Yeah. Did that show up mm-hmm. on your radar? Yeah. The Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. Yeah. At the time, I was working on this book, and so I tuned into this podcast discussing it. And the host spent, I want to say in the ballpark of a half an hour, fixated on the word the. The fact that it was titled the statement on social justice in the gospel, wrapped up in those three little letters and wrapped up in that definite article, was all the proof that this host needed that it was white supremacist, that it was um, trying to colonize black minds, that it was fundamentalist in all the wrong ways. And, and so here, here's where I'm going with this, is Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the famous wedding passage,
1: mm-hmm. that
0: love is not easily offended. One of the marks of social justice B is it actually trains you. It it conditions your synapses to be offended at virtually everything, to read into things, to find the hidden patriarchal oppression, to find the hidden racism, to find the the hidden homophobia, oftentimes when it's not there. Sometimes it is, but it it often isn't. And so when I heard that podcast, it got me thinking like, man, Scripture calls us to be charitable with each other. Where is this, what frankly is tantamount to slander, calling these brothers white supremacists? Where is this coming from? Because it's it's clearly not coming from scripture. And the longer I dug into the sources that are recommended by this host and people in his circle, it it became obvious. This is just straight up Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida style, postmodern deconstructionism which let me just (laughs) unpack that mouthful. I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with that, but it's the idea that any truth claim in the words of Michel Foucault should be quote unmasked for what it really is, which is a power play. So we need to deconstruct every statement for what it really is. Once you take the mask off, you see that John MacArthur and his crowd were really just trying to assert their white supremacy by using the word the, (laughs) <laughs> this this is the stuff we're seeing unfold all over culture right now. Yeah. It didn't spring into existence out of a vacuum. This is the stuff that was all the rage in France in the fifties and sixties and swept through American universities in the seventies and eighties, and now has become the zeitgeist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you can see in it. And I, and I think that that example that you shared is, is just perfect. I, I think that you can see this very, um, This almost, uh, it's the same kind of spirit that you see in the hardcore believers in a conspiracy theory. (laughs) Yes. Right. That, that same kind of, uh, of cynicism, suspicion, and being able to latch onto one, like that three letter word, like you said, and pull so much more out of it than was ever intended or ever meant to be in it. And, uh, and and it becomes
0: unfalsifiable right? At that point,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. once I've already, the the way I describe it in in part for the book is think of social justice be like an operating system on your computer. Um, It's a a mental operating system. And once you download it, um, you become an instant expert on all kinds of complex questions so long as you memorize about a dozen phrases. Mm. If you can say um well that's just patriarchal oppression oh you're just manifesting your white fragility um oh you're suffering from white privilege yeah. if it's a brother or sister of color who's making an objection to the theory then the the mental os kicks in and gives you a few new words like oh you've just internalized racism or you're an uncle tom or you you suffer from subconscious bias or something like that it just—it's an unfalsifiable system, because once people have downloaded it, it, it really—it has no limiting principles. It has no limiting principles. So at the end of the day, everything becomes about oppression all the time, and that's the part that breaks my heart when I see students of mine who get swept up in this, and the joy, the light in their eyes is extinguished because they're chronically triggered because they're interpreting everything as cis hetero patriarchal white supremacy all the time. It's just sad. It's mean. It's frankly mean to yeah. teach that ideology to young people or really to anybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible what it does. You know, I was I I was having a conversation with a uh with a business owner one time and he was talking to me about how he said Uh, he was having a a lot of troubles with with some of his staff. And he was was saying to me, you know, I just don't understand. I've seen, I've seen these people come in who they, uh, they start out as like young, uh, vibrant, uh, you know, very, very uh, with attractive personalities, you know, Christians. And then he's like, and I don't know what happens to them, but over time, all of a sudden they change and they start becoming angry. And that attractive personality that they once had is fading away. He said, you know, he point out too. He said they even start to look different. They 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 dress differently. Nice. They quit taking care of themselves. They they start taking on all these unattractive appearances and so on. He um, was like, it, it was just, what is happening?" And it, it was this. Yeah. It's this in every case. That's
0: um, exactly right. Yeah. But so, thankfully, the opposite story often happens. Like I share yeah. a few in the book where I I literally saw people's, you know, what an old school King James Bible would call your countenance. Which is what mm. you were just describing, right? It's yeah the outward physical manifestation of your soul's inner state. I, I saw um, students and, and friends who got liberated from this counterfeit gospel, and you could literally see the difference. <laughs> like, yeah. you could see the bitterness leave their face. And you could see the joy. There, there was a certain glow because the gospel brings a certain glow. So,
1: yeah. So we've talked a good bit now about the social justice A and social justice B differences that you draw Uh, at their core. What is driving those differences? Because uh, I'm assuming that what is uh, uh, put, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. What, What is driving each one of these streams between the A and B is a different, a fundamentally different definition of justice. Right, yeah, uh, and then along with that definition, different worldviews which are driving each one of those. So, can you explain what are the the different definitions of justice and then the worldviews? I know that that's kind of two but also somewhat overlapping questions, sure. Well, Uh, well, you asked for that's driving uh, each one,
0: yeah, that's a good question. Um, you asked for the core difference, so, so let me burrow down to to what I think is really at the center of this. Like if we just peel away all the layers of the onion and get to the core, here's what I think it is. Um, It goes back to Genesis chapter two and three, where you get the creator creature distinction, right? God is God and we're not. You get the creator creature distinction, which is where all good theology starts In the opening line of the entire Bible, in the beginning, God created. He was not his creation. There's a creator-creature distinction. And then God begins to create within his creation distinctions, the heavens, the earth, the waters above, the waters below, the waters in the dry land, the the, the under-the-sea animals, the the flying-through-the-air animals, the creepy-crawlies-on-land animals, at the end of every day, God's saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. The first, he's speaking these benedictions. Then you get to the first malediction in Scripture where God says something's not good. And you find that uh, in Genesis 2, God looks at Adam all by himself. And the garden and says, it's not good for man to be alone. What happens next? God creates woman. And at the end of that day, he doesn't just give a benediction. He gives this superlative benediction. He says, it's very good. It's very good that there are male-female distinctions. So, So what you get here is a sense of the sovereignty of God and the difference between the creator and the creation. Now, fast forward to Romans 1, and Paul, the way he thinks about Um, the God question is very different than we're used to thinking about it in our day. We think that there's theists out there who are the worshipers. They worship God. And then then all the atheists out there who are non-worshippers. That's not the way Paul frames it. For Paul, everybody's a worshiper. Everybody without exception. The question isn't to worship or not to worship. The question is what to worship. You're either... And this applies to everybody with a pulse, worshiping the creator or the creation. That's Paul's case in Romans 1. I think going back to Genesis 2 and 3, that's exactly what's happening when the serpent shows up and, and says, if, if you just eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. And the phrase is knowing good and evil. Now, for for years, I'd say my first 20 years as a Christian, that that phrase didn't make any sense to me. What does that mean, that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil? And then about two years ago, I was reading some Abraham Kuyper and some ancient Jewish rabbinic literature, and the light bulb went off. And it, I know this sounds like a, a mini sermon that's light years from the question you asked, but I, I promise I'll land the, the helicopter here. Mm-hmm. Um the phrase knowing isn't just um, you will know, like, because you read it in a book. It's not experiential knowledge, because what would that mean for God to know good and evil experientially? He can't do evil. Um, what, what's wrapped up in that Hebrew word, just to give the short version, is it's the best way I can define it in English, because there isn't an exact equivalent. It's something like a maker's knowledge a maker's knowledge meaning i know it's this way because i sovereignly chose for it to be this way right like like if i record a song in my studio and somebody asks me a question about it it's not that i went back and listened to it it's i made it that way so i know how to explain it yeah so so that's the the serpent's offer you will be like god knowing knowing meaning you get to be sovereign you you get to be the definer you get to be the knowing maker of the rest of the phrase good and evil well good and evil aren't just moral terms here in ancient judaism they would often use opposites to describe everything in between so they would say you know black and white in ancient hebrew would describe every color right if i say the beatles and creed i'm describing every rock band right Mm -hmm. (laughs) the best and the worst no offense to the (laughs) creed fans out there um So when the text says good and evil, it's referring to everything. So what was the original temptation from the serpent? It was you can be like God, knowing, i.e. being the defining sovereign maker over the meaning of good and evil, the sovereign knowing maker over everything. You get to be in charge. That's, to me, when you peel away all the layers of the onion, where these two visions of social justice most radically depart from each other? Biblical justice starts with giving God his due. You asked, what's the definition of justice? It's been defined for millennia as giving others their due. Biblical justice, social justice A, starts with the capital O, other. How do we give God his due? Right. That's why the first of the Ten Commandments is have no gods before God. That's why the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's where true justice starts, with the Godhood of God. Social justice B flips that around. It takes the forbidden fruit. It heeds the serpent's temptation and says, true justice starts with me, the self with a capital S, and my lived experience now becomes authoritative. My truth now becomes authoritative. Anybody who questions my lived experience, anybody who questions my truth, is my oppressor who needs to be overthrown, and that's going to yield radically different visions of a a just world.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I would even then follow that with asking. So, so even if someone who was your critic was to come back and say, uh, "Okay, well, I'm a Christian too," and so. And so I, I accept the biblical definition of justice to give God and others their due. Well, then how do we define what giving others their due means? Right? Yeah. Because uh, couldn't somebody say, well, it is the, uh, it is the social programs and the, um, and the redistributions the, uh, and, and so on that is giving others their due? right some yeah. so, some things that we would say well no that's not what scripture means so how do we define what it means to give others others their due who who gets to define that
0: yeah i mean given the creator creature distinction god gets to define that and so our starting point in the conversation is not with you know karl marx on one side or adam smith on the other it's not with um, free market capitalism or Socialist, communist solutions, we we should take those questions, important questions, back to the source, back to the scriptures. And what we see there, giving others their due, often means, let me make that stronger, often requires disparate outcomes. It often requires disparate outcomes. So if, um, you know, in the Old Testament, if the thief experiences the same outcome as the righteous, that that would be considered an injustice. Um, If, if the poor is oppressed, um, that would be considered an injustice. If the sloth, um, if if the lazy person comes to ruin and doesn't experience the same prosperity as the diligent person in the book of Proverbs, that's actually considered justice. And so, There's a lot to it. It's a complex, multi layered question. But I would say, in shorthand, a biblical worldview, as it defines justice, leaves substantial room for different outcomes. Social justice, B, just can't swallow that. The only, what it, leads to this conclusion. It's a dogma. It's really an unquestionable dogma in social justice B circles. Ibram X. Kendi says as much in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, where he says, when I see disparity, I see discrimination. Right? And as you discussed with with Dr. Yancey, that leads Ibram X. Kendi in his pursuit of justice, you know, to want to establish the anti-racist department and the government to ensure that, you know, anything's uh, Department with no oversight right that any anytime that is there's a disparate outcome for any person of color um, this department has carte blanche you know absolute authority to to overthrow that system so so the presupposition that equal or equalish outcomes um, are what we mean by justice it, it's just an idea yeah total, totally foreign to a biblical worldview. Yeah. Having said that, just one quick qualifier is we need to face the reality that certain despaired outcomes are, in fact, and this is a, a biblical theme, are, in fact, the result of sinful discrimination, yeah. real injustice, partiality. The Bible talks about in Old and New Testament um, how there are people who are oppressed. That's not a, a Marxist word. You know, Engels didn't invent the word oppression. Gramsci didn't invent the term. The Bible talks about oppression. And so there is such a thing as disparate outcomes that are the direct result of sin. So I want listeners to hear me clear on that. I'm not saying that, you know, if this person's doing well and that person not so much, then big whoop, they just made different choices. Um, A biblical vision of justice is robust enough to recognize the distinctions between some disparate outcomes that are just and others that are unjust. Social justice B allows for no such distinction.
1: Yeah. Whenever we start to accept social justice B, uh, we start to view justice, uh, maybe I shouldn't say only, but primarily through the lens of oppressor versus oppressed you yep. know uh w- one time uh we were i was in a small group and we were talking about the issue of justice and somebody shared the uh the bible project you know the big youtube channel uh yeah, yeah. they shared the bible project video on what is justice yep. and uh and i could be wrong so i, I might be wrong but i don't remember any, a definition that started with god's righteous character but instead the whole video was about the oppressed and raising up the oppressed, and, and and along with this, there was images being shown of people who were there's disparities and they're being brought together. You know, all there's yeah, all these yeah. levels that are being brought together. And that was the whole video. That that's what justice meant, right? And so uh so that's why I was saying, you know, somebody can hear you say biblical justice is giving others their due, but if they are unable to define uh what it means to give others their due and, and they're and they're reading that or hearing that through the social justice B lens, well, then they can just start to assume, oh, giving others their due means looking for the oppressed and tearing down the oppressor to to raise them up, right? Exactly. You're, you're, yeah. They end up being, whenever you're in social justice B, you end up being trapped in um, only seeing groups and systems, but not seeing individuals, right? Right. And, uh, and, and I think that whenever we start with God's righteous character and His law. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: Exactly. Yeah. The, the example I throw out in the book, I, I run this little thought experiment. I say, look, if, if by justice, if, if by giving others their due, um, we mean everybody ends up with equal outcomes. Here's the problem. Let, let's pretend, let's just, close our eyes and wish real hard and pretend we all wake up tomorrow with you know, a couple million bucks in the bank and you know, a fancy car in the garage and a mansion, whatever. Everybody's equal. We, we have waved our magic equality wand. How long would we get to take a break from protesting injustice in that scenario? It would be like a bathroom break. It would be like five minutes, right? Because... Yeah. People, different people making different choices will experience different outcomes. So it happens all over the Bible. That, that's a deeply embedded theme on why David experiences different outcomes than Saul. Um, it's it's all over the text. Example after example, why Cain experiences a different outcome than Abel. Different people making different choices experience different outcomes. So let's say, you know. This person over here says, hey, I got a million bucks. I'm going to go invest in this health food chain. Somebody else over here says, I got a million bucks. I'm going to buy myself a Rolex. like a Lexus made out of Rolexes. That would be amazing. And, and I would look so cool and, and have so much swag in that, in my swagger wagon. And somebody else comes along and says, you know, I'm going to bury it in my backyard. Within five minutes, you've got three very different outcomes. And if you pull in a team of sociologists and have them break that down by demographics, you're going to see disparities. So the justice seekers are going to have to step in again and do what the magic equality wand did. They're going to have to redistribute everything all over again because in, because inequality equals injustice in that mindset. And so that raises a few questions for me. Who were these benevolent overseers who we trust that they are untouched by human depravity to the extent that they're going to do that without getting greedy and unleashing more havoc. But number two, once they do that, they're going to have the same problem again five minutes later. So, so hopefully you can follow the logic here. Different, if different people making different choices yield different outcomes, and if different outcomes are unjust, then you have to move totalitarian with it. You have to increasingly force people into sameness, into making the same choices, because it's the only way to guarantee equal outcomes. And so that's what very few people in these conversations that I've had over the years seem to understand, how something noble sounding, like, shouldn't we have fair outcomes, equal outcomes, they they haven't learned the hard lessons of the 20th century. The, the lessons of, you know, Mao's China, Pol Pot's Cambodia, Stalin's Russia, or Venezuela today, the hard lessons that something that can sound so noble and look really, you know, signal a lot of virtue on a bumper sticker can actually lead to tyranny, the losses of freedoms and radical dehumanization, dehumanization and over 100 million casualties in the 20th century. So, you know, these are yeah. big ideas. There's a lot at stake here. We got to get it right. We got to get it biblical.
1: Yeah, yeah. The only way to make people absolutely equal is by removing all free choice. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah, just said why, in
0: five seconds. What took me five minutes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, we, you gave me the thinking time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes me think. I, I had Oz Guinness on recently uh, to talk about his his newest book, "The Magna Carta of Humanity." And, uh, and he, he actually goes back all the way. He starts with the French revolution and it goes through the Russian and Chinese and so on. Uh, and one of the things that he said in the podcast and that he says in the books, uh, in book, in the book is, uh, is that the revolution never ends. Hmm. Right. And so it, it it starts with this utopian vision that baby step by baby step requires, uh, another loss of free choice, another loss of liberty, you know, and so on. Because we are ever chasing that utopian vision of perfect equality, and so, like you said, the revolution never ends. And uh, yeah, we, we can look at other nations in history and see that. And unfortunately, I think we can possibly even see that in some areas of our own society today. Yeah. But there are so many more topics we could go into yeah, and, just and whatnot real quick, because. There's of, the, uh... Oh yeah. Okay. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, Just really quickly, um, just on the point you were making, borrowing from our our good mutual friend, um, Oz Guinness, um, C.S. Lewis was getting at the same thing. I just found this, uh, I don't know, a day or two ago. Um, he says it better than both of us. He says, wait for it. Uh, so this is an essay in God in the Dock. C.S. Lewis says, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. Mm It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Yeah. I mean that's that's a pretty spot on definition of <laughs> social justice B and everything we were talking about. So
1: Yeah. That's a, w- which essay is that in God in the doc Because I, I keep track of all these resources we talk about. They're gonna be in the show notes. So if anybody wants to go look that up. Yeah, uh, do you know what essay that was? I'm not
0: sure the essay, but it's on page two ninety two.
1: Okay. God in I'll, the doc go page two
0: ninety two. Not sure which edition, but
1: yeah. they, listeners need to go buy the whole book anyway. So it's good. Phenomenal. Yeah, Southern. I've read that I've read that one before. I just I can't remember the name of the essay. Uh I, I, I had a feeling I knew where which quote you were going to, but I, I originally thought, or well, I was thinking that was uh in the abolition of man. So I don't know if he says something similar to the abolition of man or if I just got those references. Oh, he up, unpacks but.
0: that in a ton of depth in abolition of man. And as yeah. as long as we're we're nerding out to Lewis here, I just finished rereading uh That Hideous Strength. And I made a post like a month ago saying that if you want to understand what's happening right now with social justice in the Western world, you will learn 10 times more just by reading this 50 year old book, that hideous strength, than by paying attention to the stuff on our social media echo chambers. So that hideous strength should be close to the top of everybody's list.
1: Yeah. That's the only one I haven't read in the space trilogy. So good. Um, I wasn't I, I really enjoyed Out of the Silent Planet. I did not like Paralandra at all, which I know is the yeah. unpopular position. I've yeah, heard mo- most right people kind of go the other way around. Um, but I was so burned out after Paralandra, I had to take a break.
0: Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm <laughs> gonna finish the, the trilogy. Way. Oh I really? know, that's yeah, we're in a minority, but I Paralandra didn't do it for me. Oh um, gosh. But I went back for that hideous strength. and I'll just forewarn you and the listeners out there. It starts slow.
1: Yeah, that's what i am heard. Hang yeah. in there.
0: I promise. It's a slow burn. Every chapter just picks up intensity. And by the end, everything just blows up in the most epic way possible. Yeah. Yeah. If you can grit your teeth and get through the first four chapters, it'll pay off big time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what everyone's told me. So that's what I'm going to do. Maybe, maybe I'll start that uh, this week. But uh, but nice. it, it's the opposite for Pair yeah <laughs> it just it just it gets worse and worse <laughs> but yeah you know, i don't know, maybe somebody will convince me otherwise one day all right well I've, I've kept you past our time uh like i said you go into so many topics in this book we could have talked for hours today but i appreciate sure. the time you've already given us like I already said i'm going to be linking uh to this book confronting injustice without compromising truth as well as all the other resources that we mentioned in the show notes so you guys who are watching or listening make sure you go Uh, Buy the book. Check out the other resources. Uh, It will be absolutely 100% worth your money uh, and time investment. I wholeheartedly recommend it. So uh, Thaddeus, once again, just want to thank you for your time, man, coming on the show. Um, Hopefully, we'll get to do this again one day.
0: Yep. It's been a joy to be with you, brother. God bless you, your family, and your ministry.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confused world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up with from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Schamp. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.